I'm excited to share today's episode with you because I get to chat about a topic where I feel like I have a lot to learn. I've led exactly two retreats in my life, and they were really special experiences, but I was definitely flying blind when I created them. The only retreat I've ever been on as a participant is a Vipassana meditation retreat, and that's a really specific and intense experience. It was 10 days of meditating for eight hours a day, no talking, no phone, no outside media of any kind. My main takeaway from that was how powerful it is to change the container and step away from your everyday life. When I left, I felt incredibly sensitive and open. Most yoga teachers are not going to create such an austere and intense experience, and I don't think it's even necessary to realize the benefit of a retreat and a benefit of changing the container for practice. My guest on the podcast today, Lily Dwyer Begg, has led dozens of retreats over the past two decades. Lily is a former professional dancer and former massage therapist with specialties in yoga for scoliosis, pre- and postnatal yoga, and asana as an athletic physical discipline. Lily brings the discipline of a professional dancer to all of her pursuits, including the planning and execution of yoga retreats. So I knew that approaching this subject with Lily would be a deep dive. Let's begin this conversation, which touches on purpose, planning, safety, curriculum, holding space, and so much more. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hey, Lily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mado. It's such an honor to be here. Your podcast is one of my favorites to listen to, and I just learn so much every time that I tune in. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to talk about retreats. And before we dive into the nitty gritty of retreats, I'd love to hear a bit about your journey teaching yoga and why you started leading retreats. Yeah, thanks for asking. So I guess I'll back up and start by saying that I think everyone who practices yoga consistently and then who goes on to teach yoga is drawn to yoga in some way to relieve some form of suffering, whether it's physical or mental pain or suffering. And I'm no different. I actually originally found yoga because of my scoliosis. My mom was a yoga practitioner and I grew up with and still have a pretty strong scoliosis, which is a lateral curvature and rotation of the sign. And this kind of led to like this low line structural pain and discomfort. I wore a back brace all through middle school and yoga was the first healing art I found that really felt empowering, like something I could practice daily that made a significant difference in how I felt both on a physical level, dealing with the structural discomfort, but also emotionally dealing with feeling maybe like I was different or dealing with going to middle and high school in a back brace. So that was sort of my journey to find yoga was through my scoliosis and through my mother. And I, in my 20s, started teaching yoga full-time. I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time. And I was a professional modern dancer. 
I had been studying yoga and practicing daily. Like I mentioned before, this was like a necessary kind of urgent part of my daily routine so that I could feel comfortable in my body. So I had a daily practice for years and years before I did a teacher training, but I did a teacher training. I started teaching right afterwards, full-time, quit my job, went all in. And so in my twenties, I was dancing professionally with a modern dance company in San Francisco. I was teaching yoga as a full-time job and also a certified massage practitioner. And the Bay Area was like this mecca of anatomists and rolfers and body workers that I learned from incredible yoga community and teachers to study with, practice with. And then the dance community was also incredible, a way of expressing through the body. So kind of dove right into embodiment, both on a physical, anatomical level and lens, but also on a deeply energetic level through performing and creating the yoga journey. When I had my babies, I think that was another big formative moment in my yoga career. I, I often say that like pregnancy and birth in particular, singularly, and then parenthood are my greatest teachers and have shaped the depth with which I can understand some of these yogic teachings on a really practical. So I also teach pre and postnatal yoga, all my offerings, no matter what they are. And there's many branches to my business relate to connecting into the deep core and connecting into the center, whether that's our purpose, whether that's that connection to the nervous system, to the deep core muscles that offer stability and longevity to the practice that helps support the spine and the pelvis. So I have many different offerings. Retreats is one branch that I offer. It's not the only part of my business, but it all kind of connects into this central aspect of connecting into core. So tell me about the first retreat you ever led and what inspired it. So If I'm being honest, I kind of got into retreats through like happenstance. It was sort of not something I was seeking, but more like something I was invited to lead a retreat with a teacher. I was, it was 2009. I'd only been teaching yoga for three years at the time. And I had a really popular vinyasa weekend time slot at a studio on, I think, Saturday. And then this other teacher had a really popular vinyasa class on a Sunday. And he was a little older than me. He was also a lawyer. So I feel like I lucked out because he had that analytical thinking about leaving the retreat with contracts and finances and all that kind of that I didn't have yet at that stage in my career. But we partnered together. We led a retreat to this little hotel in Yalapa, Mexico. And it was amazing. There were some challenges along the way, but it was amazing. I really saw that going on a retreat offers a unique way of sharing yoga and really getting to know people more closely, getting to know their practice more closely and supporting that on a whole nother level than what I was able to do with drop-in classes. So that was my first retreat. Tell me a little bit more about that. What do you think is the benefit for the students of attending a retreat? In general, I think in our daily lives, there's, there's sometimes a tendency to feel rushed, to feel or not feel, I guess, to just not have time to feel. So feelings, whatever kind of feelings, and this gets into the five koshas, the feelings in our physical body, in our breath, in our nervous system, in our emotional lives, our thoughts, our deep centered wisdom and intuition, all of this feeling into ourselves, into who we are, 
can feel hurried or suppressed and we turn away from it. And so I think when we go on a retreat, we can lean in and feel and we can slow down and behold, whether that's bearing witness to ourselves or to a beautiful place in the world or to the community, the practice. There's a lot of ways that people can have time and space. We set down the routine, the responsibility, the rhythm of our lives back home, and we have a chance to feel more on all levels. I would say that it's like a way of aligning with what makes you feel alive. And so that's going to be different for each person, but I can see it happen on retreat. I always wish I could take a before and an after picture (laughs) because people arrive and their face and their shoulders and their bodies and their body language, how quickly there's an ease to talk to a stranger who shows up on this retreat or to laugh, to put your guard down, to do certain yoga poses, to breathe in a yoga practice, to allow yourself to be supported in a shavasana or a restorative session. All of this changes and people look different. People, it's not just relaxed. It's they're connected to what makes them feel alive. They're connected to themselves. We're like a little family by the end. And so I think this is something people bring back home with them that helps them see their lives from a different perspective. You know, people say this about both about travel and about yoga, that they both offer a shift in perspective. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a chance for them to step out of the ordinary and the routine and create enough spaciousness to meet themselves where they are, to see where they are, to recognize where they are, and maybe to get a sense of what they want to change about their lives and what they want to really deeply appreciate when they return. And make peace with. I think sometimes there's this profound sense of just humor that arises of like, gosh, especially during this pandemic. And, you know, I had a few mothers come with me on the recent retreat to Greece that I led and just this sense of looking at each other and listening to each other and laughing and realizing like, this has been hard. And there's a humor in that. And there's a relaxing into our own individual truths. When we hear someone else sharing what their experience has been and we come together, I think, yeah, sometimes it's growing and changing and sometimes it's just making peace with what is. Yeah, that's beautiful. So you were talking about the first retreat you led and you mentioned that some things went wrong. I'm curious at that retreat and the subsequent ones since then, what are some mistakes that you made and some things that you learned from those mistakes? Oh my gosh. Well, so many things that I've learned along the way. You know, on the first retreat, it was beautiful. The big challenge that I had on that retreat was I got the swine flu. It was 2009. It was surreal because there were these little islands off the coast of Yalapa. And our one excursion was to take a boat. It was like a 45 minute boat ride to these little like barrier islands with no, no like buildings, no, no people living on them, no toilets. I'll say that since I got sick on the way there. I got on the boat feeling great. I think I had just taught a practice that morning. And as we were on the boat, I started feeling feverish and feeling sick to my stomach. The boat pulled up to these islands and I like kind of dragged myself 
through the water onto the sand and just laid down and I fell asleep. I had like a feverish sleep (laughs) and I woke up sick to my stomach. It was awful, but I was sick for 36 hours and there was a nurse on the retreat. She was able to give me some medicine and you know, I'm so grateful I had a co-leader who was just such a wonderful friend and support person. And he stepped up big time and taught classes for like a day and a half while I was still recovering in my little palapa room with, you know, no AC. And I got better pretty quickly, but that showed me to always think about having a co-leader or if not a co-leader, someone that you could count on if you got injured or sick. So I do lead retreats on my own these days, but I'll hire an assistant to come with me as my guest. This last retreat in Greece, I had an assistant and I invited her to come, you know, free of charge and enjoy the retreat. And if I got sick, we had a contract around what I would pay her to teach. And she offered to teach Lottie's and Qigong session, which was beautiful. I've traveled to Maui and led a retreat on my own. And I, through my network of colleagues and yoga teacher friends, I found a really experienced Ashtanga yoga teacher out there and started a relationship, you know, just through messages with him and was able to kind of connect with him as a like emergency contact. Are you available these times? So Having someone who can help if you get sick, I think is an important lesson I've learned along the way. You know, it's not a vacation. (laughs) That's one lesson I've learned. When I was in my 20s, I thought, wow, I get to go to Maui. I get to go to Mexico. This is so beautiful. This resort is something I wouldn't be able to afford as a dancer and a massage therapist and a yoga teacher. But you know, it's not a vacation. And that connects into this larger (laughs) realm of when you do something that you love, it's sometimes hard to put that thing down. I love planning retreats and I love teaching yoga. And sometimes it's hard for me to wrap it up and put it down and know that I can return to it. And that's something I'm currently still working on. But one thing I started doing recently is keeping a toggle tracker app on my phone and pressing start when I start working on a retreat, whether it's marketing, emailing, you know, collecting a balance due, corresponding with a retreat center, whatever it is, and then stop when I'm done. And I like to think of that as part of the cost structure, right? Like if you're missing a week of work, you should at least earn what you're missing that week. But then what is the hourly rate for all this work that it's exciting and it's fun. So you sometimes don't think of it as work, but it it actually is. So yeah, it's not a vacation. I take a vacation with my children and my husband a couple times a year. And then I leave retreats one or two times a year. And having those be separate is breakthrough. I have, you know, much less sense of frustration if I'm on a retreat and I just led a two hour practice and I get to the dining hall and I haven't eaten in a really long time and everyone is sitting down and I want to sit with them and talk with them and eat with them. But then say the concierge comes up and wants to know who wants vegetarian and who wants fish on our boat tour tomorrow. And I have to okay, I'm not going to eat until maybe a little while later. I'm going to go around and interview people. But I say, this is not my vacation. So that's okay. This is really, I'm clear in what my role is. My role is to support. So these people can have a wonderful vacation. Another part of that is I used to bring my husband and my baby with me on retreats and I will never do that again. So I led two retreats with my husband and my then three and a half year old child, one in March of 2017 to Maui and another one in August of 2017 to Italy, to Positano. 
And the, the Maui was great. It was a good experience. There's, there was nothing that was stressful, you know, nothing that stood out except when you hold space. If there's people listening who share yoga teacher training, you're familiar with that depth of holding space and how your nervous system feels when you are done with a session, you need a little time to decompress, right? It's really, a, it's a much larger capacity of showing up for your students than a drop-in class. And you still need time to decompress after a drop-in class. But when you're leading retreat and then you come home to your room and you have a tantruming three-year-old or something, you know, your partner is exhausted because they've been watching the child all day. So you could do this kind of work. And then they're like handing you a child and you're just like, Wow. <laughs> Like I'm on all the time. This is too much. Yeah, that was one lesson. It's like family vacations are totally different. When I went to Italy, I had a couple big peak challenges that came up. One was a massive forest fire really close to an off-the-grid resort. I was in Positano and I had my baby. I was six months pregnant at the time. We led the retreat at this place that the, you know, you got dropped off and there was a gondola that took your luggage up this hill to the this amazing resort that you could not access by car. It was like a 30 minutes straight up a little goat hill switchback. And I was like red in the face. My husband was carrying our heavy three-year-old on his back every time I walked that hill. And we walked it every day to go swimming or get a gelato or get into the town. But we're up in the middle of nowhere. And one, one night I was asleep. The other peak challenge that retreat was one of my students broke her ankle slipping off a rock at the beach. And so my husband went with her and her daughter to Naples to the hospital. So I was alone with my three and a half year old and my big belly. And I was awoken at 2 a.m. by a pair of students who had gone dancing in the town and came back and saw forest fires all around our resort. So that was, my heart was racing. I was worried about, I mean, I lived in California for 10 years where like fires can jump across a five lane freeway and it's a big deal. And so I was worried about my guests. And of course, I was worried about my baby and my belly and my child. I woke up the owners of the property and it was really stressful. It was really stressful. So things like that can come up where, you know, you're expecting just this relaxing time. And usually, you know, usually things like that don't come up, but I looked very closely after that. Also, at, you know, I'm not bringing my kid and my husband any longer because <laughs> that adds to anxiety when things like that pop up. But also I looked at where am I going? And like, you know, is there a health center nearby? Is it accessible? I started looking at things more, I guess, like a parent than like a 20 year old leading a retreat. Like, oh yeah, this is spontaneous and fun, but like how safe is this? And how are students who might not be able to walk down that hill as quick as I can going to feel safe if something happens? I had a meeting with the owners the next morning. Do you have flashlights for everyone? No, they can use their cell phones. Right. So I ask more questions. I think about things more carefully. Yeah. There's so many lessons I've learned along the way. I love that one about don't bring your family because I think it's so <laughs> tempting to maybe if you have a family, you realize that it's not going to be a vacation if you bring your family, but you might think, oh, I'll tack a few days on after to hang out with my family. Yeah. And yeah. it's just not, you're not going to be in the right place to appreciate that, to enjoy it. And having them there, I can also imagine that in theory, it sounds like it might be easier to have them there, right? Than having to deal with organizing all the childcare at home. But what I'm hearing you say is it's not easier and it's not worth it. Yeah. My partner is so amazing and he's really, you know, accustomed to picking kids up from school, taking them to sports practice. So he can thrive when he's alone with them and I can go and do my thing. And 
better for all of us. So full respect for people who do it differently than I do. But I choose retreat centers that are experts in hospitality, that are experts in yogic cuisine, like healthy, gluten-free, vegan options, green juices. You know, I want everything to be the highest caliber for the kind of experience that I want to offer my students. And I don't want to deal with it. I mean, when I was in Greece, they had shala attendants. They had people at the resort that you told them what props you needed and they had it lined out for each mat before you started. So what this allows is for me to just be in my area of genius, which is structuring a transformative yoga sequence and a dharma talk and a meditation and really allowing myself to go deep into that instead of putting out fires in the kitchen and housekeeping. You know, I know that the people I'm partnering with are experts in their field. And I feel like that allows me to really focus in on what I'm offering. So speaking of that, what are your tips for finding a retreat center and for vetting them? Yeah, I am so lucky to have like an extended network of colleagues and friends who've been in this business for two decades and plus. So I lean heavily on experience of friends and colleagues that I trust deeply. I don't go and scope out a location before I lead a retreat there. I know people who do, but personally, I don't. There's so many things that I consider before I would ask someone, you know, sort of see who had led a retreat there. I would consider based on where I live, how far is it to get there? This is something that's different these days. I'll pause here and say that I taught yoga for 2006 to 2013 on the West Coast. I have an audience there. 2013 to 2022 on the East Coast. I actually taught for a couple of years in Germany for one year in Germany in 2010 before going back to the West Coast. And then I have some students in Japan. So I have students to draw from in different locations. So it's for me, it's not just where I live and how easy is the route, but that is something I think of. And I thought of that a lot pre-COVID. All the studios that I used to teach at have shut down. Before that happened, I would like market a retreat to a class that I was teaching. And then a lot of the people that would end up coming would be people in my geographical area. So now it's different because I actually have live stream offerings. I have a virtual studio. I teach three classes a week and I have students from all over the country, all over the world, zooming in for those classes. So it's not always bound by like how easy is it to get there. In fact, the last place I led a retreat in Greece was really challenging to get to, but it was I had at one point before the pandemic, I had 35 people enrolled. It was the most well-attended retreat I've ever led. And it was also the most off the beat location. So it's not always how easy is it to get there, but that is something I think about. I like to be near water. That's important to me. The place I go in Mexico is right across the street from the beach. And there's a Mayan healer that I formed a relationship with there. And she always says, right when you get there, first thing you should do is get in the water and let the water kind of cleanse you and let go of what can you set down? What can you let go of from your life back home? Says to take a hot bath before you practice yoga. I think water, especially being near the sea, it's really, if you're doing yoga for four hours a day, it's so nice to decompress, to float. It's so soothing for your muscles and joints to get in that kind of natural, not swimming pool, but natural water. What about vetting the professionalism of the retreat center. You already mentioned, of course, reaching out to your network. 
getting personal recommendations. And then beyond that, what kind of questions do you ask them? What are some telltale signs that have made you say, I don't think this is a good fit? Yeah. So you can tell a lot by the people you're communicating, even in emails about retreat centers. So there's a feel you get for the person who you're corresponding with. You're going to be emailing with this person a lot. There's a lot of questions that come up. There's a lot of organizing that there's usually a person at a retreat center that is in charge of communicating with hosts. So that relationship is important. And you can sort of feel that out within the first few emails. Usually this is not so much what you're asking, but I will add that like for the style of yoga that I teach practice space and props are incredibly important. I don't want to just teach at a poolside, like patio with no props. I like to have a yoga studio that has as many props as possible. So that's a factor for me because that really impacts the quality of if you're going to share a two-hour yoga experience. My retreats are really centered around yoga. I don't like to lead a lot of excursions. For some people, this is an important factor. Like they're on an ATV in a desert. They're riding a camel. They're on a zip line. They're scuba diving. I don't really do that when I lead a retreat. I pare it down and it's about simplicity and presence. And where I really go deep is the yoga practice itself. So I think for some people, you know, a place with excursions might be more important than a place with a beautiful yoga studio that has all the props and a space where you'd want to stay for a deeper practice. But for me, that yoga space is important. And from there, I kind of let the yoga ripple out and do its magic. But that's really like super important for my retreats is the yoga practice space and props. Knowing what type of experience you want to provide and making sure that they have the right amenities for that. And then just making sure that you feel that your communication with the person who is the contact there, that it's clear that it's easy to communicate with them. Anything else? What about around the food? How would you get a sense of the quality of the food before arriving? Yeah, that's a great question. I ask other retreat leaders and even yoga students who've been there. And yeah, you'll know right away because like with this past retreat I led in Greece, people's faces lit up when I asked them about it. And yeah, they had an amazing spread of options for all different dietary needs. That's an important factor. You can kind of get a sense of it too. I sometimes will ask a retreat center to send a sample menu and you can see how creative and innovative a menu is. When I was in Mexico, the head chef, it's all... It's an an amazing retreat center run by a couple that are Kundalini yoga practitioners. So they're real yogis and everything they have added to that retreat center feels very authentic. The, like you can tell that the way that it's run yoga is at its heart and their chef Carmina, she created all her menus are amazing. Like, you know, super creative. She created a hibiscus taco out of the hibiscus flour. And everyone was just, wow, I'm eating a flour taco. I mean, incredible food. She'd make teas and out of the lemongrass that grows in Mexico or in the morning, like juices with celery and pineapple and cucumber. And you can kind of see if you see a sample menu and talk with people. How much they care about food. (laughs) Exactly. The care, the innovation that goes into it. So tell me what's the arc or the structure of a retreat experience 
So I feel like I've learned a lot about ordering things in a similar way that as a yoga teacher, you learn how to order your yoga class, how to create a coherent structure so that people feel prepared for what comes next. So I can kind of talk through like a sample itinerary. I like to lead a six or seven day retreat. On the first day, people arrive afternoon check-in and I give them a little time and space to get acquainted with their room, unpack, maybe walk the town a little bit. Or I have led retreats that are in a more remote area where you're getting to know the land. And I'll do an opening circle in the afternoon before dinner. And this is not like a full yoga practice, but I'll often start with some gentle movement or a pranayama and then move into a meditation. And one theme that I've been bringing to my opening circle meditations lately is the theme of listening. And so just starting the retreat from a space of listening to this new space we're in, the sounds around us, and then listening a little deeper, maybe to what you're seeking out of a retreat or what this experience is seeking of you. And then I like people to introduce themselves. So this is maybe half the time of our opening circle is people introducing themselves. But I think sometimes introductions can feel performative or like you're on the spot, you know, like it comes at you from square on from the front. Like, why are you here? Right. And I wouldn't ask that kind of question. It's a lot to answer. I would ask a question that hits on the diagonal or like the question I asked the last retreat was, what is a sound that makes you smile inside that makes you feel at home? Because we did this meditation on listening. So like, what is a sound maybe that you remember from your childhood? And in sharing this, we got to know a lot about people like a hair cutter, the sound of the scissors on the hair or someone who grew up in Europe, the sound of the cathedral bells outside my home. It was just a beautiful way of getting to know people. I like to do a sort of silent meditative walk and get immersed in the water. So we'll often go down, you can put a toe in, you can go in, and then we come back talking and we have dinner. That's the first day, the opening. And I'll talk a little bit about, you know, how people can get the most out of the experience. I'll orient them at that opening circle. Then the second day is a full day. And I think it's important when I lead retreat, it's important to create consistency. So it's different from like traveling where every day feels a little different. I like to create consistency. Meals are at a consistent time. Practices are at a consistent time. I find as a practitioner, as a parent, as a business owner, that consistency is super important for that transformative aspect of what we're doing. So I don't like to be like, now we're going to go off and do this. And tomorrow the practice is at 6 a.m. And you know, it's always the same. It's a rhythm. You arrive, you're in the same place, and you have a rhythm. So like a two-hour practice in the morning, a brunch, the first practice might be like a decompression, focus anatomically and in our meditation, what can you set down? Brunch, an afternoon practice. Afternoons for me are always restorative or somatic practices. So I teach a very strong, active vinyasa. I workshop poses intently in the morning. It's very focus. We take that morning brightness of our attention into the practice. And then afternoons are, you know, more grounding, restorative in nature. Then it's like you've had two, two hour practices in a day and you kind of know people's names. And so on day three, I'll usually do an excursion. It's the perfect day. Like in Greece, for example, we did a five hour guided hike. And this was fun because now people were like, oh, hey, I know you heard the cathedral bells and I'm going to talk with you and I'm going to, and people feel a little more confident and relaxed. And the two yoga practice also helps people just drop in a little bit more. 
So we'll do an excursion and then a restorative practice. That afternoon in Greece, I remember I led this restorative session called Romancing Your Spirit. And we had flowers and candles and people did a meditation around Sankalpa intention and wrote about it. And we tied the Sankalpa to like a flowering tree outside the yoga studio. It's really. And then after that, I might do... I'll have a couple afternoons off. I don't want people to get sick of me or sick of doing yoga. It's a lot of yoga. I mean, if you're a yoga teacher listening, you do, maybe you two do yoga every day. But if you aren't, <laughs> it's a lot of yoga twice a day, every day. Maybe people do it once a week, twice a week, an hour, you know, 45 minutes, but two hours twice a day, it's a lot. So I'll have a couple afternoons off where we have the morning practice. And at this point, people know each other, or maybe they want solo time, which I highly recommend on a retreat to not just be pulled into being social all the time, but to journal, to go on a walk by yourself, to let the individual space for all the deep work to land. And then, you know, maybe a couple more sessions with a morning and an afternoon. I only really like to do one excursion. I find people, once they're there, they get into the rhythm of not having to be so highly planned every hour of the day. And that's nice. And then on the last, towards the end, I'll bring in meditations or exercises that might ask a little more, more like in terms of people's vulnerability or courage, I guess, to join in. So I did an eye gazing meditation that was really beautiful in Greece. And that was towards the end. I think we're ready towards the end to drop into that level. I do a session towards the end there's a different anatomical theme each morning. And so towards the end, I like to teach this session that's called the big front body flush. And it's usually it's some sort of front body opening, back body strengthening, maybe some back bends. When I was in Greece, I did like half, it was two hours. So I did half was dance and half was yoga. And people didn't know they were going to be dancing. <laughs> but I used to be a dancer. And when I led a retreat in Mexico with my dear friend, Sarah Cook and she incorporated some dance and it felt so good to dance together. I got inspired by this and I thought I'd like to bring that part of myself back into the retreats. I always find personally when I'm leading these retreats, when I'm away from my children, I start dancing spontaneously. I start, I remember that part of me that is moved and feels energy and processes through movement, through dance. So I always like sometimes I'll just be alone and I'll start dancing or I'll be on the beach and I'll start dancing. And I remember that part of myself. I'm 40 now. I remember that part of myself before I had kids like a decade ago. And it's always really deeply moving on a personal level for me. So I offered a space for people to dance and I sort of framed it like, look, dance is such an important part of our culture and socialization. And I think of how many weddings have been canceled or postponed during COVID. And just that feeling of like getting on the dance floor and not caring what it looks like and being together in this nonverbal way. And I think yoga is very highly organized way of moving the body, very geometrical, archetypal, prescriptive. And from that container, we can experience immense liberation and joy. However, I also think it's really important for us to have unstructured ways of moving our bodies and connecting to spaces physically and emotionally that want voice, expression, liberation that aren't within that script of the yoga postures. So, wow, when we did the dance, I mean, I kind of structured a little bit, like we're going to feel a rhythm, we're going to feel our feet, we're going to feel our hips, 
we're going to feel each other, go to someone you're drawn to and start moving with that person. When I talked to people after they said, I knew immediately who I was drawn to. Like I knew who I wanted to dance with. It was really cool. People let loose. Like I saw people grab yoga blankets and start like dancing. <laughs> like the blankets kind of dancing on the floor. Just really, it felt like, you know, shaking up the bottle of champagne, like all this energy concentrating our aliveness over the past few days. And then towards the end of that dancing felt nice. Not, I don't dance every time, but having something like that, that feels maybe a little out of our comfort zone, whatever that looks like feels nice towards the end. And then a closing circle. I always end with a, some sort of ceremony meditation. I open a circle where people can speak and there's no like advice given. There's no crosstalk. I think at the end, just for people to share maybe something they're grateful for or something they've seen in themselves or yeah, that can be a really nice way to finish. I'm also careful of like my scope of practice because people can share things with me on retreat that are pretty heavy, that they finally have time and space to feel. Even from their childhoods, I'll have people share things. And I'm really clear, like I'm not a therapist. And at the same time, you know, like if someone was to say something like I'm harming myself or I'm harming someone else, like, of course, at that point, I would need to refer. But at that same time, I feel like there's something really powerful in circling. So we start with a circle, we end with a circle. And it's not linear. It's not like I'm your therapist and I'm talking to you. It's just a space where people can put into the center a truth that they want to express. And in expressing and having it held, be held, witnessed they can relax more fully into that part of themselves. It can be really simple, but really transformative. I've had people share, you know, I don't know why I'm so hard on myself. I look at others with such compassionate eyes, but I am my worst critic. And I think just by sharing that, something's going to start changing in that person's life, right? Just by putting that into the space of a circle, taking it outside by vocalizing it. I love that. Thank you for sharing that structure in that arc, because I can really see the journey that you allow with that structure. And I especially appreciated the thought of having some unstructured time, both throughout, but then this invitation for unstructured movement towards the end, because I do think that's really valuable. And a lot of yoga students aren't comfortable with that in the beginning. They're not comfortable with it in dropping classes. I don't teach very many dropping classes or any these days, but when I did, I always offered the option for unstructured movement at the end of class. And included in that was the option to opt out. But most people opted in. Most people by then felt connected enough to their bodies that unstructured movement felt good. But I know that if I had invited that at the beginning, only a few people would have felt comfortable to do that. So thanks for yeah. sharing that. I love it. Before we wrap up, I'd love to hear your thoughts on if a yoga teacher has never before run a retreat, what are some things they should think about both in deciding whether or not to run a retreat and also anything else to help them decide what kind of retreat they might want to run? My first question to that teacher would be, what? Do you feel that you don't have enough time and space, enough depth to share right now that is calling for the space of a retreat to be an offering? And I think 
you know, for many of us, it takes a little while in our careers to get to the place where we feel that we have something that we're just chomping at the bit to go deeper into, to sink our teeth into, to see how people engage with the material in a, you know, more consistent way in a closer container. So that, so like, why, like, what do you want to share and why is that important and what are you doing right now already that feels that you could take that and plug it into this magical container of a retreat and that might be a really great vehicle for what you're doing i think it's a great great idea to do a retreat with a partner if you've never done one before and i'll also say that one thing i've learned is not just to find a partner who does the same thing as you. And I think yoga teachers do this a lot where I want to offer a backbend workshop, but I'll do it with another teacher, maybe so that I feel more confident or I boost the sales, the number of people that show up. I think it's more interesting to do it with someone who has a skill set that's a little different than yours. So you're both bringing something unique instead of you're both just yoga teachers, but you can maybe find more people. Uh, Like maybe you have a friend who's an Ayurvedic practitioner and you collaborate to create a curriculum that incorporates yoga and Ayurveda. Or, I mean, there's infinite possibilities, but I think it's nice to collaborate with someone who is simple as maybe they're a restorative yoga teacher and you teach vinyasa yoga and boom, and you have an AM and a PM. Perfect. But it's nice to cross-pollinate instead of just to like link up because we're insecure to stand on our own feet. A couple follow-up questions. Do you recommend if a teacher has not ever led a retreat before that they try to partner with someone who has retreat experience, or do you think it would work just as well for two newbies to partner up? Yeah, I think it could work either way. I On my last retreat, I had a yoga teacher as my assistant who came and she had reached out to me a while before I invited her to be my assistant and asked, you know, I want to learn about retreats or if there's ever an opportunity. And she's been teaching yoga for quite a while, but was looking for kind of a job to participate in a retreat without teaching all of it or to get the underground sense of what this feels like before doing one on her own. So I think she learned a lot. And um, yeah, I think it could go either way. But I guess a third option I'll throw out there is like assisting a retreat. If you maybe if you're new and you email a colleague or a fellow teacher that you admire that leads retreats and inquire about assisting. For me, that was, I appreciated that. And now I was so grateful. When yoga teachers come to me for advice, for business advice, and they ask me about leading retreats, I always ask if they've ever attended a yoga retreat. Mm. I think that it's, it's on your mind and you're considering leading a retreat especially if you don't have a teacher that you feel like you could ask, that you have a relationship with them and you could ask to assist, consider investing in attending a retreat as a participant because you will notice things and you will understand the potential of a retreat in a completely different way by being a participant. And it is tax deductible. If you're a yoga teacher and you're planning to offer retreats, you can deduct what you spend at as a business expense. So I know that a lot of yoga teachers don't have a ton of money. It may be difficult to justify spending the money on a retreat, but I think it would be very worthwhile. Yeah. And there's all different kinds of retreats. I mean, I lead six or seven day retreats, but I've also been looking into recently, like, what about a three day weekend retreat? There's different local retreats. There's lots of ways that you could 
do that and really reach out about assisting a retreat because maybe a teacher hasn't even thought of that. And when you offer, it's something that they would, you know, comp you or give you a partial scholarship for offering to support if they they got sick. The other thing I would recommend that we haven't touched on a lot yet is to really look at your contract closely, your cancellation policies, both with the retreat center and that you yourself author and how much of a deposit are you taking and what it, you know, just really getting clear on your policies. If you've never done this before is like your, it's your bone structure. It's like really important to get that foundation before you get into the fun of planning. There's a lot to look at there to protect your business and make sure you're on the same page with your students who register. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for that tip. I think that could be really beneficial for people. So before we completely wrap up, is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet that you were hoping to share about leading retreat or anything that we have talked about that you feel is worth repeating and emphasizing? We've covered so much. I guess one thing is back to that whole intent of like why I lead a retreat and aligning with your aliveness and in opening space to do that for yourself as a facilitator. I highly recommend you arrive a little bit early ahead of your guests that you give yourself downtime. I know retreat leaders who stay up all night after dinner talking with their guests, but to give yourself that space so that you can, it can be really transformative for you as the leader as well. It goes both ways. And so giving yourself that space around your offerings, I always kind of, I like to have an individual room not to share. And I like to kind of go in maybe an hour before I teach and really meditate and ground myself before. And then after a retreat, it's a doozy. I always emerge and sometimes I'll get sick afterwards or just feel kind of spacey. It's like a lot of holding space. And it's incredible work. It's such an honor to hold space for others in this way. But I think it's nice to build that into your schedule as well to have a little decompression time after leading a retreat when you get home in your calendar and your workflow. That makes so much sense. That's such a wise approach and obviously based on a lot of experience. So thank you for sharing that. If listeners want to find out more about you, your work, maybe want to find and go on one of your retreats, where should they look? Where can they find you? Uh, thanks for asking. You can find me on Instagram at Lily Dwyer Beg, and you can find my website, which is lilydwyerbegyoga.com. And we will definitely include links to both of those in the show notes in case you're not sure about how to spell it. Lily, thank you so much. This was such a fun conversation and so packed with important insights about leading retreats. So I'm really grateful. Thank you, Mado. Thanks for having me on your amazing podcast.